0: This is what we've been working for 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 the years that we were building the boat and the and the children and and saving money, so brave never came into it. It was let's get going, let's do this, let's experience this let's let's have our kids have you know a, a life on a boat you know with us and see the world and and we don't want them to go up just knowing what's across the street or at the mall you know I mean you know and that's what was important to us.
1: Adventure Sports Podcast, Episode
2: 95, Sailing Around the World with Pam Wall, Part 1. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun.
3: Welcome back to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is Travis Pam Wall began a life filled with sailing as a young girl who was raised in a sailing family on Lake Michigan. It didn't take long for her to realize that a move to Florida would allow her to enjoy her passion year-round. Meeting her husband, Andy, in Fort Lauderdale, who also shared her passion for the water, led her on a wonderful life journey aboard a boat. In fact, these two adventurers raised their two children aboard their self-built 39-foot sloop, the Kandarek, while circumnavigating the world. Pam, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Travis. It's a pleasure to be here.
3: It's absolutely great to have you. So I have a ton of questions for you. You have done one of the coolest things ever, and that is live aboard a sailboat, raise a family on the sailboat, and circumnavigated the world. But I don't want to get too far ahead of us um, with all of that. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how it is you got started in sailing?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, the, you know, the 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 luckiest thing I had was that I had a father who was a sailor. And, of course, that was no planning on my part. I was just very fortunate. I grew up in in Chicago, and my father always had a sailboat. And as I grew older into my early teens, he became a very uh, adept racing enthusiast. And every weekend of every summer, we always were out on his boat racing in some race on Lake Michigan. And during those wonderful summers before I went away to college, I always went with my dad every weekend on the boat. The interesting thing was I didn't learn much because he had a full crew. He had five or six men plus himself. But I always went along, you know, to make the bologna sandwiches and to pass up the beer and to have a good time before the race and after the race. And I (laughs) really, really enjoyed it. So I was my dad's little tomboy. Um, who went sailing with him all the time, and so that's that's how I started just loving being on the water um, sailing with my father and my my uh, the rest of my family, I had two sisters and of course a wonderful mother. we would spend our summer vacations sailing on the same boats that my father would race uh, on the weekends and we'd go up to uh, the North Channel. Uh, north of Lake Michigan, and spend six weeks cruising back home to Chicago where we live. So that's how it all started.
3: There's a story about you and your first boat that your dad gave to you, and there's a special name for that boat. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. You know, as, as a young girl growing up um, in the suburbs of Chicago, I was uh, another uh, passion of mine was horseback riding along with my other two sisters. And every Saturday, we'd go off to horseback ride at our favorite local stable. Uh, my father, my mom, and, and me and my two sisters were always on horses when we could on the weekends if, if we weren't racing on our boats. And so it was more a winter thing than a summer thing. And, of course, I always wanted my dad to buy me a horse. I mean, that was, that was the most wonderful thing a young girl could have is a horse. And my father was a malicious man and, and used to laugh because um, any gift that he would give me would be a boat, a boat <laughs> of some kind, a rowboat, a canoe, even gave me some little powerboats. And they were always, they always had the name on the back of them, Pam's Pony. And uh, the last power boat that I had that was named after me was quite a vessel. Um, and I i was able to... Um, have my own Magnum 35 Hall number 3 that Don Arano designed, which really was a great, big, beautiful Donzi. And my father had that boat commissioned while I was living in Florida after I graduated from the University of Wisconsin. And it was quite the thing that this um, petite woman, uh, whose name was Pam, had this gorgeous uh, boat called Pam's Pony that she kept right at Pier 66, which at that time was the best marina in Fort Lauderdale.
3: So tell me about Fort Lauderdale. You grew up in outside Chicago and and ended up down in Fort Lauderdale pretty at a pretty young age. Tell me about getting down there.
0: Well, um, I, Travis, I, I went to the University of Wisconsin and um, naturally I, I sailed there in the late fall and the early spring with the sailing club there. I even became the commodore of it for three years, I think mostly because no one else wanted to be the commodore where we sailed uh, tech dinghies and sea and e scows and things like that. And after going to, to university in a cold climate uh, where the lake froze over every winter, I knew that I wanted to move south where I could uh, sail year-round um, after I graduated from university. And with my both my parents' blessings, I um, got in my car after I graduated from University of Wisconsin, drove down to Fort Lauderdale found a really nice house to live in um, that was on a canal with a dock and it had a swimming pool and a gardenia bush and orange trees and grapefruit trees and I honestly thought I had died and gone to heaven and uh, that's where I have remained living ever since graduating from University of Wisconsin.
3: <laughs> I guess that worked out for you then. So <laughs> yes, while you were down there you ran into a guy. Um, you're Your husband, Andy, is who you met down there. And there's a really neat story about how Andy made his way over to the United States and how you guys came together. Can you go into that a little bit? Uh,
0: Certainly. um, I started out as a travel agent when I first moved down to Fort Lauderdale. And and, uh, from being a travel agent, I went and became a yacht broker because I I did know a lot about powerboats and sailboats. And my office, uh, where I worked with a bunch of other gentlemen, yacht brokers, well, it was right on the water with a marina. Um, and my desk, I situated on purpose in front of the windows where I would type up listings and mostly look out the window dreaming all the time. And one day when I was typing up a listing and looking out the window, I saw this really good-looking, tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy walking by. And... Um, as we say in the sailing jargon, I liked the cut of his jib and thought, well, I'm going to go out and see who this guy is.
1: <laughs> Ran out
0: and introduced myself to him. And um, it turns out that he was a young Australian. His name was Andy Wall. He he had built his own 30-foot uh, wooden sloop um, in Australia as a, as a teenager. Uh, and his parents also were, were wonderful about letting him do what he wanted to do. And he sailed away from Sydney, Australia uh, with two of his uh, young mates and on this tiny little 30-foot boat that he had built. And eventually, after a couple of years, he took that boat on the ultimate adventure that any cruising sailor always dreams about, and that's going around Cape Horn. He left directly from Papiete and Tahiti and and sailed the 5,000 miles down to Cape Horn nonstop with his two friends and they rounded Cape Horn. Funny enough, just a couple of days after Sir Francis Chichester rounded Cape Horn, um, in his famous gypsy moth. And then they they slowly cruised up the coast uh the east coast of South America and ended up in, in Fort Lauderdale. And it was just crazy circumstance that he was walking past that window when I was looking out and dreaming. And um after I met Andy um we got to be good friends, and he never sailed another mile without me. We got married two <laughs> years later and had our honeymoon crossing the Atlantic in this little 30-foot boat. Oh,
3: that's great. So Andy sounds like he was an amazing man. I mean, that's no small feat to, to sail from Sydney, Australia, down around Cape Horn and and then up to Florida. Um, this guy had quite a bit of experience when you guys met.
0: Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, that happened in 1967. and. He actually is in the uh, Australian registry of historic yachts uh, for being the first Australian yacht, personal yacht to sail around Cape Horn. So yes, it was quite a feat. And uh, uh, of course, when I met him and got to know him better, I understood what a uh, absolutely incredible seaman he was. And uh, when I took off with him to sail across the Atlantic in his tiny little 30-foot boat, um, I knew that I was going to be safe and taken care of and in the best of hands.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I want to get into your trip across the Atlantic in a second here, but I did want to point out that it looks like there's a, a book about that passage around Cape Horn that his crewmate had written, Des Kearns, and that's called uh, World Wander 100,000 100, Miles Under Sail.
0: Yes, it's a great book if you can get it. I don't think it's in print anymore. But Amazon certainly has uh, copies of it. And anyone who's got the wanderlust who wants to read about young men having an adventure of a lifetime, an adventure for adventure's sake, not to break any records whatsoever, not to have the press knowing anything about it, but just to have a wonderful time and totally responsible for, for themselves, totally responsible. Remember, he had no communication, no radio, no anything like that. Uh, World Wanderer, A hundred thousand miles under sale by Des Kearns, I think should become a classic. And of course I've got about four copies here in the house. But I think I'm pretty sure you can still uh, buy it on Amazon.
3: Yeah, I'll have to look for that. I mean, who doesn't like a story about Cape Horn? They're always they're always exciting one way or another, right?
0: <laughs> yes, and, and Des did a wonderful job of describing it and also describing other sailing uh, experiences he had with Andy, the two of them sailed square rigged ships out in the Pacific. You know, it's, it's got other things besides, uh, going around Cape Horn. It's a great book.
3: Very cool.
2: For 20 years, Bent Gate Mountaineering has been outfitting climbers, skiers, backpackers, and outdoor enthusiasts with the gear they need. Whether climbing an 8,000-meter peak or buying your first backcountry ski setup, BentGate is here to help. Bentgate is continuing to offer free BC 101 sessions this winter, teaching backcountry ski boot and binding setup, avi safety and beacon practice, clothing systems, and tips and tricks to make your days more enjoyable. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment. Bentgate also has free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a chance for hands-on experience. Be sure to check bentgate.com for our full product selection as well as updates on all these events. The 180 Flame is the
1: ideal alternative to bulky and fragile gas-burning camp stoves. The 180 Flame utilizes fewer parts with minimal weight and maximized reliability. The locking tab and slot design means there are no hinges, welds, or rivets to fail you in the field. Cook your food and boil water quickly using only small amounts of natural fuels including twigs, grass, pine cones, and leaves. Weighing just 6.4 ounces, the 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to a backpacking stove. You can find your new Flame at 180 tackcom or a retailer near you. 180 Flame. Think big, pack small.
3: So this handsome Australian swept you off your feet, and he convinced you to marry him, and he also convinced you to take your honeymoon sailing across the Atlantic Ocean on this pretty small boat. I mean, it's a 30-foot boat going across the Atlantic. That's a pretty small boat to do it in, and it was a very basic boat. Can you tell us about that experience?
0: Yes, that that little boat, um, if you can imagine, I am a 4'11", uh, 4'11", and he was 6'4". And the the joke between the two of us is the only reason he married me was because I was the only woman he'd ever met who could stand straight up in his boat. Um, <laughs> but Seriously, it, it did not have anything more than four feet, 11 inches where you could stand up in it. It was a tiny little boat. Um, it had a, 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 a small kerosene stove. It had... Uh, an engine that never worked, we, so we just gave up on the engine. Of course, it had no electronic uh, equipment whatsoever, except the old Zenith uh, transoceanic radio, where we would get time ticks for celestial navigation. Um, it was a very basic boat. It didn't have a toilet. I had to use a, a good sturdy uh, <laughs> plastic bucket. One. Um, no, no, refriger- <laughs> no refrigeration whatsoever, and I actually slept on the cabin sole and the mast, which was stepped on the keel, um, went between my two legs. So the of us lived on that boat for four years, cruising over in Northern Europe. And you know, Travis, it was the most wonderful, happy time of my life. I mean, we never felt as though we were without modern conveniences. We felt as though we were totally responsible for ourselves, and that that little seaworthy boat, and we got to see the world from our cockpit.
3: wow, that's awesome you know that's uh that's a part of it that uh that really fascinates me you You painted the picture well of the boat it's uh it, there's not a lot there, but you guys were able to to just truly enjoy life and each other on this it wasn't there wasn't a lot of things with you um you didn't have a lot of belongings, but it was what you had in that boat and each other that was truly important.
0: And the adventure. And, you know, I think when you have a lot of equipment that that makes your life more like a life that would be on a house that floats, um, you you lose a little bit of that adventure. It's like it's like um, camping out in a tent rather than camping out in a big camper van. Do You know what I mean?
3: It's. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Everything is very, very basic and and you live by the seat of your pants, and also uh, by the knowledge that you glean from how you react to certain conditions like weather, and currents, and tides, and fog, and, and things like that, you you become totally responsible, and boy, that's, that's exhilarating, you know?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I want to dive into that a little bit deeper later on, and that's uh, the topic of packing and, and, and setting out for, for something like this. We always, uh, we always tend to pack too much and take too much. But before I do that, um, I want to upsize your boat now. You guys decided um, that that wasn't enough and you decided that you'd like to have a family. But in that process, you decided to build a 39-foot boat by yourselves and to take your family on that and circumnavigate the world. Um, starting on that, I really want to dig into this one deeply and I'm gonna have a lot of questions because this (laughs) relates to something that I kind of want to do, uh, in our near future. So I'll have a lot for you.
0: (laughs) Oh, okay. Wonderful. Well, you know, the main thing is that Andy and I could live on that tiny boat together and, uh, and, and, and very happily for the rest of our lives, except for the fact that if, you know, we used to joke that if we added one more potato chip, the boat would sink. (laughs) <laughs> and, and and we really wanted to have a family very badly, and uh, we decided to sail back home across the Atlantic, which we did, sailed back home via the Canary Islands and the West Indies and the Bahamas, and then back home. And a young Australian was on our dock in Fort Lauderdale taking our our dock lines when we finally returned from the, that wonderful passage and voyage that we had over to Europe. And he said, I want to I want to buy your little boat for you. Here's cash for it. And I know that uh, there's a young man from Australia out in California um, that has built a mold of a very famous design called the Freya. And uh, Freya was a boat that was designed and built, again, in timber in Australia in the mid-60s. And it won the difficult and, you know, sometimes treacherous a Sydney Hobart race three times in a row. So if you were a young man like Andy and the young man who wanted to buy our boat from us from Australia, you always wanted a Freya. And we knew we wanted a bigger boat. And now all of a sudden we had cash in our hands for our, our little boat that Andy had built in Australia. And, and we had the boat of our dreams, uh, perhaps. For us uh having a mold out in California that we could go and rent and lay up the fiberglass hull to begin a, a new much bigger boat for us and and with that, I mean we borrowed my sister's car we didn't have a car we borrowed my my sister's car um we had this cash in our hand uh from my friend Bill Nance, who bought uh, a little thirty footer that was called Karennate, and we drove out to Petaluma, California, which is uh well known throughout the world as the chicken capital of the world, I love that <laughs> the chicken capital. Anyway, um, there in a great big freezing cold warehouse in, in a wet rainy February day, uh, we went in there and met the young Australian who had built the mold. And there was this huge big two two part mold um, that he rented to us. And Andy and I spent the next several months laying up, up the fiberglass. Uh, on both sides of the mold, and then when the fiberglass was thick enough, we put the mold together and, of course, attached the, the mold together to make one hull and um, put a temporary deck in it. Put the or First of all, put some lead in it for the ballast and then put a temporary deck on it and then trucked it back to Fort Lauderdale and spent the next 10 years, uh, both of us working, uh, both of us building this boat, this dream boat of ours, uh, completing her, and and also building a, a great crew, our two young children. And finally, that was, by the way, that year that we laid the hull up was 1975. And in 1985, we, we sailed off to circumnavigate the world as a family.
3: Wow, that is impressive. I mean, just getting a boat ready to sail the world is enough of a task in and of itself. But to actually fabricate one before you're going to go, that is, uh, that's unprecedented.
0: Well, I'll tell you what. I, I sometimes think back and think, how do we ever do that? You know, because
1: right. There, <laughs> That's it's a major so, task. Yes,
0: yeah, so much detail. But it was. Let me just tell you, like having our children, it was a labor of love. And uh, today, I consult with people uh, very often who are buying boats to go off sailing, and I always want to stress to them that um, getting a boat ready to sail anywhere, uh, it should not be a stressful thing. It, it should be a challenge, but a happy challenge because look what, look what you accomplish at the end of it. And you know that's the way we always looked at it. We, we made a lot of mistakes in the boat that we corrected. Uh, all the mistakes were our own. She's turned out to be a fantastic boat. But, um, yeah, it took us 10 years, all our savings, um, both of us having full-time jobs, both of us raising our, our little children to be of an age where we could take off with them. And um, to tell you the truth, it was one of the most rewarding things a family can do together.
3: Yeah, it's the experience that is truly invaluable. I can I can kind of relate to that. The, uh, the My co-host, Kurt Linville, uh, the other guy that does a podcast with me, we both spent two years building his house up in the mountains by hand. Just the two of us, we carried every board in there and put them all up. And, and we worked uh, nonstop for two years throughout the summer and the winter, uh, all seasons, and did that. And you're right. I mean, it's, it's a matter of, you look back and you say, how in the heck did we do that? But one it's one day at a time it just gets there eventually as long as you persevere and then the the amazing feeling of looking back on it and just just sitting there you know and us with a beer you know standing there looking at it thinking wow we did this you know it took us two years to do it but we we completed it this is our thing and i can relate to that it must be how you guys felt with this boat
0: exactly i mean you've got it and isn't there the most sort of chuffed feeling of you know when you when you see what you've completed And you wonder how you ever, ever lived through it. But when it is complete, it's kind of, well, you don't know this, but it's kind of like having a baby that horrible nine months until the baby comes. And then you can totally forget (laughs) about the horrible nine months. Otherwise you'd never have any children again. Do you know what I mean?
3: Yeah. Yeah. There's something in nature that makes us do that, right? (laughs) Yes,
0: exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, I, I truly believe that, um, it's it's worth it as long as you make it a challenge and you don't make it a stress. Do you know yeah, what I mean?
3: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
2: It's Tim Emmett. I'm a professional climber and wingsuit pilot. I really enjoy public speaking, and I've spoken at schools, events, and businesses all over the world. I believe that you can change the way you feel by changing what you think about and using lessons learned from a world in extreme sports. If you're looking for someone lively to brighten up your event and maybe expand your concept of possibility, send me an email to tim at timemmett.com. That's T-I-M at T-I-M-E-M-M-E-T-T dot C-O-M. Thanks a lot. Colorado Mountain Club members get the most out of the Colorado summers. We summit 14ers, enjoy relaxing fly-fishing excursions, climb 1,000-foot rock faces, backpack through wilderness areas, explore the culture of Europe, raft through the Grand Canyon, and so much more. The Colorado Mountain Club teaches you the skills you need to safely maximize living in such an awesome outdoor playground, as well as connects you to thousands of other adventure-loving mountaineers. Founded in 1912, the Colorado Mountain Club acts as a gateway to the mountains for novices and experts alike. It's the perfect time to sign up for a membership. For more information, go to cmc.org. That's cmc.org.
3: about the Freya design that made it so special?
0: You know, I don't know. Uh, uh, these brilliant designers in Australia, his, his name was uh, Magnus Halverson. He had already been designing a lot of boats, but what somehow or other, um, he, he just got, got it right. Do you know what I mean? Somehow or other, like when you're designing anything, you could either have a flop or something that was good, something that was mediocre, or something comes out. Fabulous. Do you know what I mean? Just fabulous. Yeah. And, yeah, so he managed
3: uh, to nail the whole design, the, the yeah. sleekness of the beam and the draft, and everything yeah. just came, came together right. just right.
0: Right. I mean, if you ever saw her, and yeah, I'm sure that you would just go, oh, my God, what a gorgeous boat. You know, oh, yeah. my God, what a gorgeous boat. And, of course, you don't know how they're going to react when you get them at sea, but this boat absolutely proved itself. In these three Sydney Hobart races, you know, when everybody else was was far behind them and getting into trouble, I mean, she was a proven thoroughbred that, you know, just like a, just like a horse, okay? Um, she, she won. Uh, she was bred well. She came from good breeding, you know, with, with designers who, who knew what they were doing, but you just don't know until they're out there doing what they're supposed to do, you know?
3: Yeah, yep. Boats really are beautiful in their own right. I was uh, I was in a bit of a sailing family. Um, wasn't sailing all of my life, but I would say, I don't know, maybe when I was 14, 15, my parents had gotten their, their first boat. And they ultimately um, moved up until they got to their Endeavor 43, which they went and lived aboard, um, kind of kicked me out of the house and, and decided to go live aboard their boat. But uh, but, yeah, the boat was it was just a beautiful boat. It was uh, more of the, it wasn't a racing boat it was more of the Clydesdale of boats, but it was still a beautiful <laughs> boat. You know, it's uh, right. I just love being down in marinas and, and, and just looking at boats, listening to the sounds of the halyards banging off the masts. And it's just a it's a, a surreal time.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the thing is, is that I don't know, it's kind of like almost like magic, isn't it? Do you know what I mean?
3: It really is. It reminds
0: me of magic. And uh, the thing is, is that anybody can have the magic because, you know, everybody has a different idea of what the perfect boat is, right? Everybody. And of course, you don't buy a boat unless you think it's the perfect boat for you. So it will become the perfect boat for you. So it's magic. And, of course, my dad used to say, you know, it's like horse racing. If, if everybody didn't think differently about horses, there would be no horse racing. Well, it's the same thing. We'd with all
3: boats. bet on the same one. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. So, you know, to me, you know, I, I'm i like, you know, like a grandmother says, you know, let me tell you about my grandchildren. But the thing is, is that's the way everybody should be about their boat. Everybody.
3: Yeah, no doubt. So, well, if you're not that way, you're probably not on the right boat. you got to go looking for the right one.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly, yep. exactly, so, so let's
3: get into this six and a half year circumnavigation. Um, you guys were I want to say brave um, to to do it with children and but it was it had to be the most amazing experience um to take your children out there and raise them literally around the world. I mean the people that your kids must have met and the places they must have seen, the education, the real world education they must have received out there has to be phenomenal. I mean, I'm in awe of that piece of it for sure.
0: You know, we never thought of it as brave. I can't say that we ever, ever, ever thought of it as brave. It's something we wanted to do and we knew we were going to do it, you know. And um, it's, it's just like a person who plays golf wants to do a good golf game. A person who plays tennis wants to play a good tennis game. Uh, you know, it, we never thought of it as brave, and even even my parents were so so all for it, you know, they just wanted to do it themselves. They they said, you know, I wish we could go with you, and yeah. and uh, you know, to us, it was very important to do it because this is what we've been working for 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 the years that we were building the boat and the, and the children and, and saving money. So brave never came into it. It was, let's get going. Let's do this. Let's experience this. Let's, let's have our kids have, you know, a, a life on a boat, you know, with us and see the world. And, and we don't want them to go up just knowing what's across the street or at the mall, you know, I mean, you know, and that's what was important to us. And, and, uh, Besides the beauty of sailing, I mean, excuse me, uh, the beauty of making a landfall in a new place, the wondrous things of meeting people from all different cultures. And, and, you know, I mean, and for our children to be educated by seeing and meeting and doing and understanding rather than by reading a book at a desk, well, to me, that's worth a million, trillion dollars.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Well the thing I was alluding to earlier is um my family right now we're we're kind of toying with the idea, uh going back and forth on whether we should do it, but it's um selling the house and and basically minimizing and going and living on an RV with our children. And it's not to boat and out in the middle of the ocean. We have the safety net of, of highways and cities near us, but it's for that same reasons to allow our kids to be able to see the country and, you know, if we want to we do homeschool education, so if we want to teach them about a certain aspect of our country. We can pick up and go there and show them, you know, here's the Liberty Bell, you know, exactly. so you didn't just see it in the book, but here it is exactly. in real life. I mean, when you stand in, a, in, in a, a place and you learn about it as time, it really you really soak it in at that point, you know, and I think. It's so difficult for kids to soak things in while reading boring textbooks and listening to the boring teacher, you know. I mean, it, just to be able to stand there and, and experience something in real life, is uh, it's worth a million.
0: Oh, yes. No, I mean, anything like that, anything like that, you know. And, again, um, don't think it's frightening out at sea. Uh, to me, it's more frightening driving down. I'm 95 from Fort Lauderdale to <laughs> Miami to have lunch with my son. You know Good what point. I mean? <laughs> <laughs> It's not frightening because out there you're you 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 are responsible for yourself, and really you have to take care of yourself. But you don't have to worry too much about other people. Do you have to worry about Mother Nature and and King Neptune? Of course you do. You know, of course you do. But you have to do that here too. Look at forest fires. Look at look at uh, floods. Look at you know what I mean. Look look at eruptions and 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 you know earthquakes and things like that. We have the same things here, just it's a little bit different out there. So it's it's um it's not frightening at all. You know, it's not frightening. It's just um actually it's quite peaceful. I mean sometimes when you make a land play, you think, Oh dear, you know back to traffic and <laughs> shopping yeah, exactly. and laundry and mail and you know and bills to pay and stuff like that, whereas out at sea really you're much more in harmony with what's going around you that mother nature and mother earth and King Neptune is going to throw at you, you know?
3: Yep. I can understand that. So how are your kids doing now? I mean, what is their take on being raised on a boat for six and a half years? Do they feel like they missed out on anything or do they, are they really grateful they had the opportunity?
0: I think when they first came home, you know, after that period of time on the boat, they felt really strange because of several things. Number one, they didn't know what a football was, but they could scuba dive. Uh, number two, <laughs> they'd never ridden a bicycle, you know, but they windsurfed. Uh, they were as as much at home with adults as they were with uh, their peers, and you know that just wasn't done in schools. You didn't you didn't have a, right. a chat with your teacher. Um, now, their hands important. were you know their hands were always up to answer questions, and of course, that made them strange, you know, because they were they they had formed a curiosity that um you know made them want to learn more because of of you know what where they had been and, and what they had done and what they had witnessed and everything and and it was it was difficult you can't you can't be different in a community when you go to a public school Do you know what i mean when you yeah, become different yeah when you become different uh, you have a difficult time, and they they were certainly different. So, what happened is when we got them home, they said to us, "Mom and Dad, we've gone to school in Tahiti, we've gone to school in New Zealand, we've gone to school in Australia, and of course we've done uh, homeschooling on the boat all the time. But we don't like being um, foreigners in our own home. Please send us to school in France." You know, they they had learned how to speak fluent French when they were in. Papiete, and then again in New Caledonia, and again in Madagascar, and places like that. And and they loved the French culture, and uh, thank goodness for the Rotary that has the youth exchange program. Both of them were sent uh, to France to school, where they felt much more at home <laughs> than at school here.
3: Yeah, that's interesting. How neat.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's and neat that
3: they got that opportunity to uh, to go where they they dreamed of going instead of being being thrown into something that they weren't comfortable with.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Well, it's it, it's kind of interesting because um, we actually put Jamie into, thanks to some wonderful friends of ours who helped us, into a a, a private school up in New Hampshire. One of those beautiful private schools. <laughs> After two weeks, the, the principal called up and said, um, "Mrs. Wall, I just want you to know how." Grateful we are to have Jamie. He's a fantastic student. Um, he's just doing so well on his schoolwork. But uh, most of the kids who come to this school come here because they don't like their parents. Their parents are so grateful to get rid of them.
3: Your, oh no!
0: No, seriously, your son um, is miserable because he's not with his family. And you had such a tight knit family in such a small, you know, confined area. He, he's not ready to leave the nest. So I suggest you take him home. Um, so I had to go and take him out of school and bring him back. And he said, "I want to go to school in France." And and he and there, that he was happy there. And then no you kidding, know, he, he and Samantha <laughs> went to school and finished high school up in France, and began their college educations in Toulouse. So right. I mean, you know, it's it's really interesting. They both eventually came home and got a good college degrees. Jamie graduated with honors from the Rhode Island School of Design. And Samantha graduated with honors from um, Nova Southeastern University here in, in Florida, so it's not like their education um, was hampered by not being in a classroom all the time.
3: Oh, absolutely, no. And I do want to point out that uh, your kids were four and seven. Uh, your daughter was seven, and your James was four when you guys first set out, right?
0: That is, that is correct. But don't forget, okay, uh, they have been failing, Even though we we didn't finish. Now, well, actually, Kendark is 40 years old and we still haven't finished her. But even though <laughs> uh, we didn't take off to sail around the world till they were that age, every summer we took them somewhere, even as, you know, as they were tiny little infants, we would go up to Maine, we'd go up to Canada, up to New Brunswick, we'd go to Bermuda, we'd go to the Bahamas, we'd go to the West Indies, and, and we always, always had a summer vacation with our small children going up on the boat. So at least... I mean, they were as home on the boat as they were, you know, in the in, in the in the in the house here. As a matter of fact, they liked it better because it was more fun. Well, <laughs>
3: oh, with two parents with the passion that that you and Andy have for sailing, it's uh, inevitable. Yeah, <laughs> right. Really inevitable.
0: That's cool. Right. So, you know, to them, to them, it was it wasn't unique. It was life. You
1: right. know what I mean?
0: That's, That's normal. Oh, doesn't every kid grow up on a boat?
3: <laughs> <laughs> right. Every kid should.
0: Yeah, yeah. Very
3: cool. So tell me about Ken darick What's what's the name?
0: Oh yeah. Well, um, Bill Nance, the same young Australian who was on the dock uh, with Cash in his hand to buy our little Caronade, our little thirty-foot boat, when we returned from my honeymoon, as I say, um, he had started to build a Freya. Because remember, he was Australian, same age as Andy. He had started to build a Freya, and it just hadn't worked out, but he had already chosen a name for that Freya, and since he wasn't going to be able to build the Freya, but he was going to uh, take a uh, little aid from us and continue sailing, he asked us if he would name our boat what he was going to name his Freya, and because he was uh, from South Australia, um, he had chosen the name of a mythological cave-dwelling painting that the Aborigines had all over South Australia of a Kandarik. And a Kandaric is a large, large kangaroo who has a big stick in his hand. And apparently he was the mythological kangaroo that taught the Aborigines of Australia how to dance. And huh. um, I have a picture of Kandaric on the bulkhead so that people, you know, can know what it is, but it's a terrible name to name a boat because uh, if you remember on your Endeavor, you, you use a VHF radio and you're always calling your name. That's and your identity, nobody, right. And nobody, yeah. And I, you know, I mean, I can say Kilo Alpha November Delta Alpha Romeo India Kilo faster than I can say Kendarik because <laughs> no one would understand me when I would say Kendarik, you know. And it was a, a joke with me and Andy, it would have been much better to name the boat the Pamelo.
3: <laughs> yeah,
0: that's probably
3: true. <laughs> it's got to be so tough for the the other people at the other end of the VHF radios, the bridge operators, and whatnot. It's got to be so oh, yeah. tough for them because people have these goofy, goofy names for their boats all the time.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, we were often called Can of Garlic, you know, and things like that. And uh, but anyway, that's what the name is, and I'm forever thankful to Billy Nance for suggesting that name to us. Uh she is she is a dancing um, Australian icon. I Very feel. cool. Okay. Very. Cool. <laughs> I love it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Would you like to be a guest on an upcoming show? Just go to adventuresportspodcast.com and click contact us. Also, take a minute and help us spread the word about the Adventure Sports Podcast. Do us a favor and go on to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review. Everything helps. Thanks for being a listener.